This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 190. Greetings, Metamorphs! Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamorph City Story Universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. Each week, I share a piece of my fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also tell you what's new in my life and my writing. So let's kick things off with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 48 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Kate, John, Morgan, and Will have just escaped from a trap set by the Brotherhood of the Sepulchre, the sinister apocalypse cult behind the recent string of murder kidnappings. The Brotherhood had captured Will while he was doing research into the cult's activities, and they used him as bait in a plan to catch and kill anyone who might be working with him. Our heroes were assisted by the arrival of Murakir Kunis, an immortal wizard who has been fighting the Brotherhood for the last thousand years. Murakir had previously chosen Kate to be one of his pawns, the mortals who assist him in investigating and stopping the cult's activities. He helped break the summoning trap that our heroes had been caught in, and killed the summoned Daedra that the Brotherhood had called into the trap in order to kill its occupants. Several additional Daedra were stopped by the quick thinking of John, who passed through the portal into the Dreamlands, and created a distraction through the use of a cold-forged iron hunting knife. This maneuver earned John the grudging respect of Murakir. It takes a brave man to bring iron into fairy. Foolish, but brave. Murakir remains hostile toward Morgan, however. As a vampire, she is anathema to Queen Artela, the nature goddess who gave Murray his immortality. During the fighting, Kate was struck with crippling flashbacks, which left her unable to function. It's now clear that Kate is not ready to be in a combat situation, and might never be. With their de facto leader out of action, John took it on himself to plan their next steps. Will is their witness to the Brotherhood's activities, and their best chance of recruiting additional help to take down the cult. At Lizzie's suggestion, John sends her, Will, and Callie to speak to Wendell Schubert, the district attorney, and a family friend of Lizzie's. Homicide detective Michael Pirelli will contact his boss, Captain Joe Montgomery of Precinct 9, and get him to start pulling together cops they can trust. Then he will go with the other three, to make sure they get to their meeting with Schubert safely. Meanwhile, Morgan and John will stay with Kate and try to find the Brotherhood's current base of operations, so they can keep an eye on them until reinforcements arrive. Murakir will go with them, not to spy on the Brotherhood, but to perform an incantation that will cut off the Brotherhood's access to the ley line. Even if John's plan works, the reinforcements won't arrive fast enough to stop the Brotherhood's ritual, but by diverting the flow of the ley line, 
Murray can deprive the cult of the power they need to open the portal to their imprisoned god. Our heroes part ways for their respective missions, dearly hoping that luck will be on their side. The Lost and the Least A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 48 Kate listened attentively as John described his plan. Callie, Will, Lizzie, and Michael were already gone, off in search of reinforcements. Kate wasn't happy about them passing information to more people outside their group, and she really didn't like the idea of Montgomery breaking the truce that had kept him and Martha safe all these years. But it didn't look like they had much choice. Idiot, she told herself. You thought you could take on a thousand-year-old conspiracy with your little band of misfits. Turns out you can't even handle a gun anymore. You did good, she told John when he had finished. They didn't give you any trouble about taking charge? John looked away. I didn't take charge of anything, he said, a little stiffly. I just carried your water a while. It's still your show. Kate reached up and touched his hand. Still, thank you. You're welcome. He turned his hand around and gripped hers. You ready to move? Ready as I'll ever be. She let him help her to her feet. She retrieved her gun from the floor, checking the magazine, chamber, and safety all by reflex. She didn't feel any discomfort or uneasiness with the weapon now. Apparently it was only using the gun in combat that triggered her. Still useless to me, either way. She slid the pistol back into its holster and took out her Arthana instead. At least she could still do magic. I hope. She noticed Morgan and Murakir orbiting quietly around her, keeping Kate between them. Each stared at the other warily, two predators taking the measure of each other. I hope you two are going to play nice together, because I've got no time to play referee. Kate said. Murakir smiled enigmatically. Your vampire has nothing to fear from me until she betrays us. John glared at the mage. The language must have changed a lot while you were away. I think you meant unless she betrays us. I stand by my phrasing, Murray said, unperturbed. Morgan's eyes flashed yellow-green for a moment, but then she visibly reined herself in. What's our next move, darling? Time to figure out where this ritual is happening. Kate turned to face northwest, opening up her wizard sight as she did so. She could sense the ley line flowing past them again, now that Murray had broken through the bubble of the summoning trap. The pulses of death mana had coalesced into a steady wave running through the mana stream, strong enough that Kate's stomach started churning as soon as she opened her sight. But inside that wave, Kate now noticed a second pattern, much fainter but unmistakable. Its presence permeated the wave and subtly altered its character, like shining a spotlight through a sheet of colored cellophane. It was, she realized, the aura signature of a person, much like the one she had found and amplified for Will 
in order to perform the location spell. Son of a bitch, Kate whispered. John and Morgan both looked at her curiously. I think someone's standing in the ley line, she said. She pressed a hand against the wall, trying to get closer to the ley line. She couldn't actually draw the ley line's mana into herself from this distance, but she could feel the ripples it made through the ambient mana as it flowed by. She closed her eyes and concentrated, opening up her wizard sight to its fullest extent. She focused on that pattern, the aura signature that colored everything else. And then, out of nowhere, a thought formed in her mind. This is Jared Tamlin. I'm a prisoner. Help me. Kate stepped back from the wall, alarmed. She'd been on the receiving end of telepathy before, and it was always an unnerving experience. Other people's thoughts didn't belong in her head, and she didn't like people putting them there. Under the circumstances, though, Kate was inclined to forgive it. She turned back to the others. I found Tamlin. They're running the ley line through his body. John exchanged a look with Murak here. Is that dangerous? That sounds dangerous. For most mortals, it would be, Murakir said. But if Tamlin is a prospective vessel, then his capacity to store and channel mana is exceptional. Like me, Kate murmured. She'd stood inside not just a ley line, but an actual mana nexus, and had experienced no ill effects. No wonder this god thing showed up in my dreams. I'd probably be a star candidate to become his vessel. The thought made her shudder in revulsion. Can you tell how far away he is? Morgan asked. Kate looked up at the ceiling and tried to visualize the energies involved. With the way the Aura signature was spread out, maybe a kilometer? Not more than two, I wouldn't think. I'm just guessing here. It's not like I've seen a lot of people standing in ley lines. We will need to circle around upstream of them, Murray said. Then I can divert the ley line away from their ritual. We should go above ground for that, John cautioned. If they set one trap down here, there could be others. Agreed, Kate said. Morgan, you take point. Murk here, watch our six. John, with me. Callie wrapped her hands tightly around her swoop's flight yoke, trying to keep a steady distance from the police cruiser in front of her. She kept getting distracted by imagined threats. A shadow that looked out of place, a suspicious vehicle in a nearby alley, the sounds of nearby sirens. Of course, she was also distracted by the hands around her waist. Will kept squeezing her tightly at random intervals, as if he needed to remind himself that she was still there. Callie had brought Will's helmet with her, hoping it might serve as a talisman to make sure they got him back. Now he leaned into her, letting the spell-hardened composite press into her shoulder blade. It was annoying, and possibly unsafe, but she didn't say a word of complaint about it. She did, however, flick on the walkie-talkie circuit between their helmets. How you holding up, Tiger? It took a few seconds for Will to respond. I... I don't know. I feel really strange. Callie gritted her teeth. That'll be the vampire blood. She'd known what Drowling had done to Will as soon as she saw him. And lucky, lucky Callie, she got to be the one to tell him when this was all over, 
and deal with whatever the fallout was. There was a lot she didn't understand about Will's religion, but if they couldn't handle people having sex or taking drugs, she was pretty sure they would blow a drive turbine at the thought of someone drinking magic vampire blood. Will would be convinced he'd committed some kind of terrible sin, never mind that he hadn't had a say in the matter. Are you dizzy? Callie asked. I don't want you falling off back there. It was the wrong thing to say. It made Will squeeze Callie even tighter. I won't fall off. I just feel... strange. I'm really, really awake, but I feel... sort of separate from my body. I don't know if that makes any sense. He sighed into his mic pickup. I wish I knew what they gave me to wake me up. Sounds like some kind of stimulant, Callie said. Well, that's true, at least. We can find out later. Right now I'm just glad you're alive. Me too, Will admitted. He fell silent for a time, and Callie returned to her paranoid search for impending threats. When he spoke again, his voice came out hesitant and thoughtful. Those... those people who helped rescue me. They're friends of yours? From your work? Kate's a friend, Callie said. The rest of them are from her crew. It was her op, so she picked the team. That's how these things work. Okay. And, um... She's the one you warned me to stay away from, right? I did say that, didn't I? Callie thought. Gods, it feels so long ago. Out loud, she said. Yeah, that's her. Will seemed to be struggling to put his thoughts into words. Is she... Is she a bad person? Callie was taken aback by the question. What? Fuck no, why would you say that? Well, you told me to stay away from her, Will said, defensively. And then she shows up, and she's with that demon guy, and I think that drawling lady might be a vampire. And then there was the creepy skunk wizard. He trailed off uncertainly. Callie sighed. Don't tell me. Your church told you that Daedra and vamps and mages are all evil, right? Will hesitated. Not, um, all mages. Callie resisted the urge to sigh again. Look, maybe people can believe that kind of thing where you came from. But on the street, shit is complicated. There's some real bad fuckers down here for sure, but mostly it's just people. We're all a little good and a little bad, and you take your help where you can get it. Nobody's righteous. Nobody's holy. We're all fucked up one way or another. That's life, Will. You stay here, you're gonna have to deal with that. Will chewed on that for a minute. Yeah, he said quietly. Yeah, I guess so. Morgan watched from the back seat of the skimmer as John slowly negotiated a path through the narrow alleys and long, dark tunnels of the street. Kate had decided that the best chance of reaching the ritual site unnoticed would be if they circled around it, rather than following a straight line from the construction site northward. Kate now sat in the front passenger seat, her eyes half-lidded in concentration, as she reached out with her wizard sight. Whatever clues she was looking for, Morgan could not sense them. 
though she could feel the nearness of the ley line and the wave of death mana that the cultists had generated within it the subtleties of arcane auras were beyond her she hadn't been able to sense magic at all until she became a vampire and since then her opportunities for study had been limited i should probably do something about that she thought i hate being unable to help on the rear bench beside Morgan, the little skunk morph sat in much the same posture as Kate, though he leaned forward slightly in his seat to make room for his sizable tail. He shifted position, and a wave of fresh skunk smell wafted through the cabin, making Morgan wrinkle her nose in distaste. It was rather like being shut in with a man who had soiled himself without realizing it. At least I can keep an eye on him. Morgan thought sourly. She hadn't wanted to say so in front of him, but she knew the name Murakir from her study of Metamorph's history. If he was telling the truth, if he was that Murakir, then he was possibly the most dangerous man Morgan had ever encountered, Malcolm Ardvalos included. He had disappeared from the historical record shortly after Kaya became the Majestrix, but Morgan wasn't terribly surprised he was still around. When an immortal died, it tended to be remembered. What did surprise her, and worry her, was his interest in Kate. As Morgan knew from painful personal experience, immortals didn't think like normal humans. Their focus on the long view, on the perspective of centuries, tended to make them callous in their dealings with mortals. People like Kate were tools in their hands, to be used until they were broken. Morgan wasn't about to let that happen. Kate sat up a bit straighter in her seat. There, you feel that? Murakir's tail twitched. Yes, we are very close now. Fifty meters, sixty at most. Kate looked over at John. Let us out here. Find a place to park where you won't be noticed. Obediently, John pulled over to the curb. Kate jumped out while they were still a half-meter above ground, and Murakir and Morgan followed close behind her. Morgan scanned their surroundings, simultaneously trying to watch for threats and get her bearings. Two large towers loomed over them to the immediate north and south. Morgan didn't recognize either of them from ground level, so she didn't know which noble house's territory they were on. Not that it probably mattered. This whole area was zoned for light industrial at street level, and the contents of one tower were much like another's. Directly ahead, to the west, the towers gave way to a strip of smaller buildings, since megastructures could not be built atop the underground river. On the river's far side, one last line of towers rose between the city and the foothills of the Dragon Mountains. Kate glanced over her shoulder at Morgan. Can you tell if anybody's around? Morgan raised her nose and sniffed, which promptly gave her a strong whiff of skunk. She grimaced. Sorry, darling, but I'm afraid I can't sense anything at the moment. Her eyes flickered from Kate to Murakir and back, indicating the source of the problem without spelling it out. The mage might be a dangerous, half-insane immortal who would sacrifice them both in a heartbeat to suit his purposes, but that was no reason to be rude. Kate followed her gaze and nodded slightly, taking her meaning. All right. Murakir, where do you want to set up this block on the ley line? 
the skunk more frowned at the little buildings ahead. One of those should suffice. I can draw on the ley line here, then forge a channel to the node at Kararak. He pointed toward one of the peaks to the west, though it was nothing but a patch of darkness glimpsed between the towers. It will be slow. The mountain does not bend its channels easily. Then let's get you set up so you can start working on it. Morgan, take point. Find us a spot without innocent bystanders. Understood, Morgan said, and took off in a near-silent vampire run. She circled the first block of small buildings, gazing quickly into the windows as she passed. Most of them were barred, and all were grimy with the emissions from street-level trucks and factories. She found a small skimmer repair shop that was deserted, broke in through a side door, and took stock of the open shop floor. The broad slab of concrete should be ideal for working spells, if her experience watching Kate was any indication. No alarms had gone off, as far as she could tell. There might be a silent alarm, but Morgan had no idea how to look for one, nor how to disable it if she found one. If a patrol cruiser showed up to investigate, Kate could do the talking. She went back and led Kate and Murakir to the spot. John rejoined them en route, following a few steps behind Murakir with his shotgun at the ready. Morgan was gratified to see that he didn't trust the mage either. Murakir examined the shop floor in silence for nearly a minute, muttering arcane calculations under his breath. At last, he gave a slow nod. This should work well, he admitted, grudgingly. Kate gave him a curious look. Didn't you say that any of these buildings would be fine? The skunk morph looked back at her, impassive as a stone. Yes, but I prefer to see for myself what a vampire deems safe. He raised his eyebrow in Morgan's direction. Meaning, Morgan thought, you expected me to betray her. Rage rose up in Morgan's chest, the beast making itself known in response to the challenge from this intruder. She noticed the change that washed over her vision when her eyes turned yellow-green felt the shifting of her jaws and skull, and the lengthening of her claws that came with her battle form. With iron self-control, she moved, slowly and calmly, and positioned herself between the mage and Kate. Now, she judged, a little rudeness was called for. Let us be clear about two things, immortal, Morgan said, her voice as cool and hard as steel. Item one. Kate has three allies in this room. Two of these allies love her unconditionally. The third sees her as a means to an end. Therefore, if any of them were going to betray her, it would necessarily be the latter. In her peripheral vision, Morgan saw Kate shoot a look over at John. Morgan thought she knew the substance of that look. John loves me? Is she serious? John shifted uneasily and looked away, his brick-red skin blushing a few shades darker. Item two, Morgan continued, turning her eyes back to Murakir. If my suspicions are correct, if you betray this woman I love, if you use her and discard her like one of your reagents, then I swear to you, by the Dark Mother and all the gods who ever were, I 
will come for you. I will hunt you down, and I will not stop until I have ended your immortal, execrable life. For a long, long moment, Morgan held his gaze, staring hard into that lone, glittering black eye. The mage stared back, unafraid of Morgan's hypnotic powers, as cold and unmoving as granite. A spark of fear rose up in the back of Morgan's mind, though she did her best to conceal it. He's going to kill me, she thought. She knew it was irrational. The immortal wouldn't risk alienating his new pawn by killing Morgan. Not here. Not now. But she could not shake the notion, as that dark eye stared back at her, that he had taken note of her and filed her away as a problem to be eliminated. It doesn't matter, Morgan told herself. He needs to know Kate is protected, and Kate needs to know we stand with her. At last, with glacial slowness, Murakir smiled. It was a cold, hard thing, as if the Earth Mage himself were made of stone, but there was a glimmer of some new emotion in his eye. Morgan wasn't sure if it was surprise, or pleasure, or respect, or something more complicated and alien than all of these. But whatever was going on inside that immortal mind of his, he stepped back and bowed to her. And most astonishing of all, he lowered his eye when he did it. As one predator responding to another, he clearly understood what that meant. Please forgive me, Dr. Drowling he said. I have dealt with many vampires in my life, but few who had gone between as recently as yourself. I had forgotten how much humanity still remains at that age, how long the bonds of affection and sentiment can linger. He turned his eye to Kate. She will not be the danger that I had feared. Not to you. It will be several mortal lifetimes before her ties to humanity are severed. He looked back at Morgan, and now, she was sure, there was real respect in his gaze. When that day comes, should I still draw breath, I will remember you as the woman you are now, and not the creature you become. He spoke the words calmly, almost gently, and somehow that made them more frightening than threats and curses, because Morgan knew, deep down, that she could become exactly what he said she would. Immortals don't think like humans. And Morgan herself was an immortal in the making, though she was still too young to feel like one. Gods have mercy. Great, Kate said. Her voice was thick with emotion, but she hid it behind a mask of irritation. Glad we settled that. Is everyone done hurling death threats at each other now? Can we get back to saving the world? Murakir bowed again, this time to Kate. Of course, detective. Come, let us build the circle to harness the ley line. The more hands that aid us, the faster it will be done. And that's the end of Chapter 48. Come back next time, when Will gives his statement to the district attorney. But if they want to live long enough for it to do any good, they'll have to evade the Special Investigations Division. 
Katrina Monroe said, Writing is like giving yourself homework, really hard homework, every day for the rest of your life. So sharpen your number two pencils. It's time for the weekly writing report. I wrote 5,103 words this week, over the course of seven hours, for an average writing speed of 729 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 238 days without breaking my chain. This week, I finished my edits on Homecoming, and just in the nick of time. The book is now up for sale on Amazon Kindle and Smashwords, and it should be available in paperback by the end of this month. After Homecoming was ready to go, I spent the rest of my writing time this week on my science fiction short story, The Flower Garden. Looking back on the month of May, I wrote a total of 12,601 words in 25 days, averaging 504 words per day. That average is lower than usual because most of that time was spent on editing Homecoming, and there were a lot of days when editing didn't involve adding many new words. I've now met my goal of writing on at least 24 days of the month for four out of the last five months. Compared to April, my word count decreased by 27%, and my writing time decreased by 12%. Out of the 49 months I've been tracking my writing, May 2019 ranked 33rd, coming in about 3,500 words below my average. Still, for a month when I was prepping a novel for release, that's not bad at all. Over on the Patreon campaign, Carol Foote has just released her latest piece of bonus art. This is our last illustration for To Walk in Shadow, and it depicts Siong and Jessup fighting the bereft in the Fountain Plaza. It's visible to all patrons at the $1 tier and above. But that's not all. Patrons at the $3 tier get more exclusive bonus content, including sneak peeks, cover reveals, and other cool stuff. And if you're a patron at the $15 tier, you can be an ebook advance reader. Patrons at this level get free copies of every new ebook I release, including my latest novel, Homecoming. If you like my stories and want to help me keep telling them, becoming a patron is the single best thing you can do to support me. Roughly 91% of everything you donate goes directly to me. That gives me a stable, consistent monthly income that's almost impossible for creative types to get any other way. Because of my wonderful patrons, I've been able to do things like pay artists and cover designers, order proof copies of my books, and take my cat Jewel to the vet when she got sick. If you want to join their ranks, head on over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Take a look at the donation tiers and choose the one that's right for you. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. 
That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.